Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Good afternoon. Welcome. I'm Victoria Budson, Executive Director of the Women in Public Policy Program. We're so pleased that you could join us for our WAP seminar here today. As many of you know, our work here at the Women in Public Policy Program focuses not just on measuring gender gaps, but very importantly on how one closes gender gaps in the areas of political participation, health, education, and economic opportunity. To that end, we regularly enjoy working with Heidi Liu. She's a terrific asset to have here at the Kennedy School. And today, she's talking about counter-stereotypicality counter and looking at the influence of decision contexts and role models on female risk preferences. She is well-equipped to do this. She has her BA in economics from the yard. She currently is in a joint degree program getting her PhD here at the Kennedy School and her JD at the law school. Uh, she has been someone who's really focused on understanding the difficulties and inequities and disparities both in education as well as around issues having to do with gender and reviewing that from a behavioral economics, labor economics, and decision-making frame. So we're looking forward to her talk today. We're so glad that she's here. Um, many of you have probably already read and digested some of the fruits of her labor and that she also was a research assistant on the book Nudge. So she's someone who has been in this space for a long time, and we're so pleased to hear your talk today. Sure. Okay, um, I'm really excited to be speaking here. Thank you so much, uh, Victoria, for that really kind um, introduction. As an undergrad, I used to sit in the back of the WAP seminar room and kind of sneak in and get my free lunch, but also um, learn, learn a lot from, from these things, and that's really shaped kind of the research trajectory that I'm on today. So um, it feels like uh, the circle has been closed in some ways, and I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to talk and the support that WAP has really given me in this um, kind of research. So today I'll be talking about, and it's a mouthful, countering counter-stereotypicality um, on some work that I've been doing with WAP's Hannah Bowles and uh, Sridhari Desai, who's actually here from UNC. Um, and so what we're going to think about are a couple different things. We're going to think about how context matters in risk preferences, pair the title. And we're also going to think about a particular intervention that might help. And that intervention is role models. So the literature on uh, gender and risk taking um, in the economics and psychology literature generally point to one thing men are more risk-seeking than women. Um, so I've pulled out a couple quotes from you know, meta-analyses that have you know, 150 papers looking over the lifespan, and they all come down to this. Risk-taking is an attribute of the masculine psychology. Male participants are more likely to take risks than female participants, and the robust finding is that men are more risk-prone than women. So that's something that you know, we see in the economics literature. Um, we see that in kind of um, experiments that involve lotteries, um, experiments that involve risk-taking. We see this in high-risk behaviors among adolescent boys and men. Um, we see this in health behaviors. We also see this in popular culture. Um, does anyone know who Jack Dorsey is? Okay, um, so for those of you who aren't aware, um, he's the CEO of Square, which is a payments startup, and he's also the CEO of Twitter um, as of this week. 
And so I picked this um, article from Slate because they really think that his self-important conniving and multiple jobs make him perfect for the CEO job. Um, I, I find it difficult to believe that that would be said of a female CEO, but I'll leave you to your own assumptions. Um, my friends are also involved in VC ventures, and one of them sent me this link to a VC site uh, last week. And these are things that they're looking for when they fund startups. They're looking for a relentless focus on success, about having deep-seated insecurities about being the best. They're looking for aggressive and competitive startups. They're looking for disruptors. Um, they're looking for people with ambitions about the future. Um, when you think about a founder with these characteristics, you know, who do you think about demographically? Um, and so, you know, along this list of characteristics of founders, we also have a high appetite for risk. Um, so what I would posit is that risk seeking is kind of in this list of very masculine kind of characteristics. Um, that's obviously not true for everyone, but, but these things do present in a fairly masculine way. And so I think we can, you know, maybe assume that risk taking is often viewed as a masculine characteristic, not only in the academic literature, but also in popular culture and in our broader framework. Now, we don't necessarily know what leads to that, and that's always kind of a nature versus nurture debate. We know this from an evolutionary perspective. We have a couple experiments, not mine, but others have shown, and possibly the most famous of them is this bridge exercise. And what happens is that male participants um, are asked to engage in a virtual reality exercise. And what happens is if there's an unattractive, I know, this is terrible, research assistant on the other side, they don't cross the bridge. But when there's an attractive research assistant on this virtual reality bridge, they actually make their way over and they're willing to take risks. And so the idea is that for an attractive research assistant, they're, they're willing to kind of proceed, um, that there's some sort of ingrained uh, reproduction mechanism. Um, but we also have societal and cultural norms. I think I've kind of discussed this kind of with the startup world. Um, but we often think of you know male, male role models as maybe superheroes versus female role models um, as kind of princesses. Even Rapunzel in this Disney um, feature is one of the more feminist Disney characters, but she is still trapped in a tower. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> But why don't we put a finer point um, kind of on the literature? So we know in the real world there are actually little bits of different contexts in which we either have strong differences in risk taking or we have you know, differences that are mitigated somewhat. So we find that men are more risk taking in physical skills and outdoors activities that's like camping, um, hiking, all of these things, and financial decision making. And we know that financial decision making is actually the bulk of the risk-taking literature. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned lotteries a little bit. Um, for those of you who are less familiar kind of with that setup, what that is is that um, basically participants in a psych lab um, are asked to kind of write down um, whether they would rather have like a dollar or a half chance of winning two dollars versus nothing. And that slowly increases where it's, you know, the money, uh, the amount of money increases or the probabilities change. And that's how they determine risk. Um, so that seems like a pretty limited context in the lab. There's also work done on investment, which we'll get to later. Uh, but what we don't see are risk differences in social skills. And so uh, Johnson, Wilkie, and uh, Weber have a um, paper in which they use a particular index called the DOSPER, and they see whether people speak up 
um, for their friends when they're in danger, when they speak up, when their friends are on the line of losing their job. They don't find you know, significant differences by gender in these kind of socially risky scenarios. Um, surprisingly, or not so surprisingly, we don't see gender differences in dangerous and pro-social heroism. And what I mean by that is that in situations where people are willing to risk their lives for one another, we don't actually see differences by gender in the propensity to do so. We can see that among Holocaust survivors. We can see that among uh, medalists, like people who rescue um, people or puppies from like burning buildings. There's actually um, an index for this, and you don't see differences. Um, you don't see that among kidney donors as well. So, so really high stakes situations. Um, and we don't see huge risk differences when you're looking at managerial experience. Um, I know that's something that we've discussed before in previous seminars, but what that looks like is when women have managerial experience, their attitudes towards risk and towards investment are very similar to those of men who um, have that managerial experience. So that suggests that training plays some role. Again, looking at context, um, this is not specifically to risk taking, but we often see that kind of changing the situation also changes women's performance. Um, most of you probably know this more closely as stereotype threat. So when you're primed a particular way, um, your behavior kind of aligns with the stereotype of that group. Um, for example, McCullough has a situation where they use physics tests, and in one situation, the masculine situation, men are um, given a physics problem in which they're looking at, I believe it's like a baseball trajectory, um, pretty standard in any high school physics class. Um, women are given questions that are either that sort of baseball trajectory or more genderedly, um, a baby bull falling off a high chair. And what you actually find is that women are actually answering those questions about the baby falling off the table um, more correctly in those physics settings. Um, we see that in negotiation too. A lot of Hannah's work um, and Sridhari's work has focused on kind of the gendered aspects of negotiation. And so when your content of a negotiation is kind of more feminine, if you're kind of settling into a professional identity, somewhat um, like the talk last week of a, of a woman um, professional at the same time, you perform better um, under negotiation. Uh, lastly, there's, there's a nice kind of discussion of intersectionality. So in Shay's work, um, they basically prime Asian American women to be either more <coughs> Asian American by simply labeling their ethnicity or more female or feminine by priming on gender. And they find that um, those kind of performances on the math exam are consistent with stereotypes. Uh, Asian American women perform better than usual when uh, they're primed with their ethnicity and not their gender. So in thinking about all of these things, what, what, what can we draw? And so the idea is that we can draw from both the role of context, um, both the role of changing performance in the kind of spectrum of gender congruent or masculine and feminine behaviors, and we can expand that to the literature on risk. Um, that's to say, you know, do we think that folks change their risk-seeking behavior according to the context? Um, so that's our hypothesis one. So we're going to go through six studies today. The first four studies are going to focus on that changing risk preference in accordance to masculine or feminine context. And the last two studies will look at a intervention that deals with that. Those are the grayed out hypotheses. Um, so why don't we go ahead and jump into study one. So study one is 
basically a scenario study. And what we do is we expose participants, both male and female, to a scenario. Um, we know that from the literature, conferences are viewed as more masculine, that men tend to be you know, put in charge of conferences or you know, business travel as a whole. Um, and women tend to be kind of more the vacation planners. And also, feel free to just raise your hand and ask questions at any point. Um, so what we do is we have folks try to plan a vacation um, or a conference, basically. And we have them choose between a risky location and a safe location. And that's a theme that you'll see up um, around the first three studies that we have. We'll have them choose between a risky choice and a safe choice. And the thing to look out for, just to spoil it for all of you, is that women in feminine conditions or in exposed to feminine scenarios are more likely to make that risky choice. Um, so let's go ahead and look at the scenario. Um, basically, participants read this scenario. You're organizing a week-long summer conference or location, and you're choosing between two locations. Um, in the safe scenario, you know, the first location is absolutely perfect as long as the weather is nice, um, but there's a 37% chance that it's going to be rained out. Um, the second location is not all that great, but it's acceptable, and the weather is almost always good. So again, we expose participants to one of these things, either conference or vacation, but change is really small, um, and we ask them to pick the location. Here are the results. What we find is that among female participants, um, close to 80% of them are more likely to choose this risky location. Um, I kind of think of it as the Seattle of vacations, which is don't go on a rainy day. Um, and I, I don't want to be a self-hating Minnesotan. I tend to think of um, the less risky location as, as Minnesota in some ways because it's a little bit less exciting. I'm really sorry to this podcast right now. Um, but, but it's, you know, great otherwise. Um, so, so we see that difference among female participants, but we don't see that difference between male participants. There's a gap right there, but it's not statistically significant. Go for it. Did you pretest for why vacation versus confidence and why weather versus another risk factor? Yeah, so we definitely pretested to make sure that it, you know, vacation was more viewed as a feminine sort of planning thing and um, conference travel was planned as a more masculine sort of activity. So I think, I believe we said something like, who's more likely to plan this? Um, and that's true of all of the other studies you'll see. They've been pre-tested on scenarios. And, and so far as like the weather factor, like, like you could have said something else about the conference or vacation and location. Like the risk might be, the venue might cancel on you. Yeah. Did you pre-test for the weather factor as well? So I don't think we pre-tested specifically for the weather factor, but it was, you know, I think you raise a really good point about kind of the cancellation policy. We wanted something that was kind of uniform over there. So um, I think one of the initial ones was like activities, and that got rolled out because those are going to be different between conference and vacation. Um, feel free to. Yeah, I was going to say also we um, drew on the previous study that had already looked at these differences, and so, so we're trying to. This was the first study. We wanted to play it safe, not be the ones creating a lot of variants. Correct. So, yeah, that's a good question. So we'll jump into study two. Um, study two is a little bit different uh, in that we actually give them actual monetary payoffs. They're not huge, but. They are monetary payoffs in, in kind of the economics lingo incentive compatible. So we're hoping that people will change their behavior according to how much they're going to get in a bonus round. So these are with lab subjects. 
So what we have here is we're exposing them to two scenarios, a masculine scenario where we're asking them to make an investment choice. We're also exposing them to a feminine scenario where we're asking them to make a choice on where to shop. So I'll show you the example here. Basically, the payoffs are going to be the same in the uh, masculine condition, which is um, in investment. So there's a one out of three chance that store A will have this, uh, on sale the item you need for only 21, but if they don't have a sale, it'll be 120. Um, store B has the item you need and they'll charge you $90 for it. Um, with the way that the probabilities come out, that should be a pretty relatively risk-neutral situation. You shouldn't feel pressured to push um, one decision versus another. So again, um, we see similar results. What we find here, again, is that women are more likely to choose the risky decision. Um, so that would be store A, where there's kind of uncertainty about whether something's on sale or not. Um, in the shopping condition, they're more likely um, to choose the sale choice in investment. Um, so that's actually under 50%. Um, we also see an interaction effect here, um, such that women are much less likely to choose the risky investment option than men are. And so that's what that dashed line looks at. Um, my, my own kind of sense of intuition of why we see that particular effect here is that um, investment is so strongly coded masculine that um, and it's so often used in the literature as a setting that we might see more risk happening there. So we'll look at study three. So study three not only involves kind of a payoff, but it involves um, what I would call skin in the game, or what I would call tongue in the game, because it involves eating. And so what we have here is not just incentive compatibility, but we have real product choice. And what we have is we're having folks choose between um, an Indian power bar and an Indian candy bar based on kind of these Amazon-esque reviews. Um, and so what they'll do is they'll read reviews, um, they'll have a risky review in which the uh, reviews are either love it or hate it, or the product is safe, so um, you know everyone's pretty ambivalent about it. This is how I feel about like nerds candies, for example. Um, and then we have them take it home from the lab. So they're, they're really actually consuming it. We choose Indian power and candy bars because that's something that people are less familiar with. Um, so they really have to rely on those reviews. So for example, the risky product, basically, if you're, um, everyone sees a risky product and a safe product. And whether it's a power bar or candy bar differs. Again, power bar is the masculine condition. Um, a candy bar is more feminine. And we also kind of pre-tested for this. Um, and we've also kind of looked into the literature and marketing. And so what we find is in the risky product, you know, it's like a one-star review uh, versus a five-star review. Um, for the safe product, we find kind of these two ambivalent sort of Amazon reviews. Um, I thought that since these were Indian candies, they might be different, but nothing new here. So what we find again, again, I realize this is, you know, a lot of the same, and that's the goal. We want to show that this really translates across contexts, that people are really buying into it, and people are taking home these choices that they're making. We find, again, that women are more likely to choose the risky choice uh, in the candy condition, which is feminine, um, but they're less likely to do so in the masculine condition. So that's the candy bar right there. So as a whole, these three studies, um, both in kind of lab and um, other contexts, kind of show you know, that women are more likely to take these risks in feminine contexts. So we wanted to take this kind of out of the lab, even though that there are real decisions being made, and we want to apply it to the broader culture. Um, so, you know, as a whole, this is what the studies look like. Um, what we do is we look at the game show Jeopardy. Um, so 
I have sadly, or not so sadly actually, personal experience with this. Um, I was a contestant several years ago, and that actually kind of inspired where the study came from, which is that um, I remember coming back from my um, taping, people saw and they're like, why did you pick those NFL questions? <laughs> I don't understand. Um, and what, you know, what they don't understand is that we're like the only family in the Boston area who are Vikings fans. We're like at least 200 miles out here. Um, but, you know, I know, I, I'm meeting on Minnesota today. Um, I'm really sorry for this podcast. But, you know, there is something to be said where um, there's an expectation um, that women aren't able to, you know, know these masculine uh, sort of topics, even if they've been professionally training for a while, as I had been on the show. Um, luckily, there's this great stream of research about game shows. If you're a game show nerd, I encourage you to take a look at it. Um, we can use game shows to think about risk aversion, um, so using shows like Let's Make a Deal, if anyone still remembers that. Um, there's one in the UK called Golden Balls, which is a modified prisoner's dilemma. There's a long stream of research of using these situations. Um, there's also kind of work on game shows and gender, um, in particular, that can often be seen you know, through Jeopardy, through Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Women um, in the competition literature are, more, are less likely to kind of sign up for these shows. They're more likely to drop out in early rounds if they have the option of doing so. And they're more likely, um, according to this stream of literature, to bid less. Um, but if we're thinking about context, then the question that we should be asking is, do we think that's because women are naturally more risk averse than men? Or is it because of the context that's involved? So some folks have seen kind of, you know, just qualitatively what games look like, and they say, well, you know, the topics on the show are, you know, pretty framed masculinely. So what we look at is actually coding for the gender content of a Jeopardy game and seeing how much people bet on it. <coughs> so let's talk about the data set a little bit. Um, and let's talk about the show, too. Um, so Jeopardy, if I haven't discussed before, if you're less familiar with the show, is a trivia show. Um, it has two rounds. People answer questions. They get money. Um, that's pretty much it. But there's a special feature of the show. So as you earn money on the show, you kind of keep it into a pot. And the pot and it says how much um, you win behind that podium. But there's a special the feature. there's a special feature of the show in which if you randomly pick a question, you're randomly informed that you have a daily double. And what a daily double means is that you don't know what the question is. All you know is the kind of category or the frame that it's in. So it could be about cars. It could be about Russian literature. Um, it could be about children's literature. And what you can do is bet the money that you have on whether you think you'll answer the question correctly or incorrectly. So what we're looking for right now in this data set is to say, hey, um, in masculine or feminine categories, are folks willing to bet more or less um, in the situation? They have no idea what the exact question is. All they know is that category. So what we do is we look at <coughs> what happens when someone gets one of these things. Um, and you know it's limited to the first time they do it, so they don't really have any experience with random betting. And most of the folks on the show only show up for one time, so we're, we're fine with that. Our dependent variable is a bid value ratio. This is a little bit complicated, but all it means is that we measure how much the person bet over how much they thought the question was going to be. Jeopardy categories and questions are basically uh, ranked by difficulty. So the more a question costs, the harder it is. 
So the more that you bet over uh, the actual value of the question, it should signal for how confident you are in answering the question correctly. Um, we also look at the contestant gender and the category gender. Contestant gender meaning whether the contestant is male or female. Um, and we also look at um, correct answer and winnings. Correct answer should show us the actual ability of the contestant. Someone might have bet less but still got it right. Someone might have bet a ton and still got it wrong. We need to control for winnings because the more money you have, the more like the higher your bet is probably going to be. So does that mean that you also corrected for how particular contestants answer in that same category in previous <coughs> So we can't always see when uh, contestants answered in the previous category, um, mainly because there are only five questions per category, so it's not always clear. What we're controlling for is just um, kind of ex post, whether they answered the question correctly or wrongly. Um, it's a bit of a kind of, to get technical, there's like a bit of exogeneity, um, and it's a little bit mixed. This is the cleanest setup we can do because they don't know the answers ahead of time, but they did have to kind of choose that question. So they're really taking the best option that they could at that point. Um, and I'll answer kind of sort of going into it. Um, you're probably wondering how we determined category <coughs> gender, um, since that might be kind of a controversial issue. What we did was we reached out to former Jeopardy contestants, and we reached out to also members of a certain Northeast Quiz Bowl team located around Boston. Um, <laughs> and we asked them to look at a ton of categories um, 1,200 categories because that's how many people are in our data set. Just to be clear, I'm not in the data set, but 1,200 other people are. Um, and we asked them, you know, where do you think most people uh, think this category falls? Do you think that more men than women are more likely to answer the question correctly, or do you think more women than men are? The reason we ask uh, more people, most people think, is because we don't want folks to kind of self-correct for their perception of being sexist or not. So we average those scores. Um, they pretty much relate very closely to one another, um, and, and we use that in our index. So these are some of the things that came out of our index. Um, famous woman is a feminine category. Fashion is a feminine category. Flowers are a feminine category. Um, beer, military, history, and cars are not feminine categories. If you're wondering what the most masculine category is, it's Boy Scout Awards. If you're wondering what the most feminine category is, it's Girl Scouts Awards. So, so I feel pretty, pretty solid on this ranking. Um, so, you know, some things we wanted to think about before we ran the analysis. Um, obviously, we want to control for ability. We want to control for that on the individual level. So, again, whether someone got it right or wrong. We also want to control for that on the macro level. And what we find is that, you know, men are more likely to give uh, correct answers. Um, and there are actually, as, as you probably saw, there are 57% men on the show at any time. Um, because they're more likely to get correct answers, they also have kind of higher starting points. Um, they can bet more money. And again, that's why we control for winnings um, on the show. But, and I think this is really important, they don't appear to select into gender stereotypical categories. Um, what that suggests to us is that even though folks are picking on the show what their category is, and therefore they should be betting more in theory, um, men aren't bidding on masculine categories. Women aren't bidding on feminine categories. So kind of any betting behavior we see around um, whether a category is male or female shouldn't be because they opted in by choice. How do the categories um, break down just generally? Are half the categories female, half the categories male of these questions sure. that are so, offered on the show? 
Um, on, on our data set, which is from uh, 2001 when the last rule changed. I, again, I'm nerding out. Um, 2001 <coughs> to 2013, I would say about mm, like two thirds of the categories are masculine. That might be more why they're more likely to be correct. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we try to control for that individually. Um, here we're looking really at that risk behavior. Um, I think with regard to correct answers, what I will say is that everyone on the show trains really hard. Everyone kind of knows their weak spots. Their weak spots aren't always the same. Mine, my, my weak spot is actually not sports, it's actually Greek mythology. And so, so you kind of bulk up um, on these things. But yeah, go ahead. I'm just wondering um, why men are answering correct answers in math and science or engineering, and why women is uh, answering. I, I, I see, it. Is, it a, is it a training, or is it a genetic, or is it a, uh, I've, uh, opportunities women exposed, or women exposed, or what do you explain that? Yeah, so kind of in an early analysis, I had looked at masculine and feminine categories just like as a binary. And what I find is that men and women are actually aren't differing in how much they're answering correctly by the category. So, so it might be true that you know you're getting more correct answers, but we don't actually we don't actually see that men are answering more math and science questions right per se. Um, I should double check on that, but you know because of the sort of uh, kind of fine tuned data that we have, we just control for um, whether that individual got the question right or wrong, not whether their demographic group doesn't. Um, we don't know if there are differences then by ability. We know that that's probably not true in this data set. Um, and, and again, I think thinking about risk taking and thinking about ability, the, the really key thing here is to say this stuff changes by context. Um, so why don't we go ahead and uh, look at the analysis. So I ran three OLS regressions, which is to say that I look at how um, the, the bet uh, bid value ratio, and I look at how that changes if we just add gender into the equation. And then what happens is I'll add gender controls, and those controls, again, are about ability. Um, so whether the person got it right or wrong, how much they were winning before. And then I look at a third step, which is we look at stereotypicality. So you know, how much more masculine it is than, uh, than for a female or otherwise. So um, looking here, this is kind of from our paper. Um, what, what is really interesting here is basically this particular row. Um, these stepwise things, what's, what's really interesting is that as you add gender um, and you add stereotypicality, this washes out, which is to say that there's kind of a conventional wisdom that men are more risk-seeking than women on the show. When you look at stereotypicality, that, that effect actually seems to disappear. Um, again, that's with our data set, but um, that's what we're seeing so far. But what's really important here is to say that um, contestant gender versus category gender encounter stereotypical situations. Um, people are more likely to bid less in those situations. Um, this isn't quite a full match, so this isn't like a dollar number or anything associated. Um, that's mainly because we're using a continuous variable, a scale of one to five, but you see that decrease. Um, what's really interesting here is that if you split it between male and female contestants and you run the analysis again, um, you don't see that change in risk behavior among male contestants. Uh, that effect is largely being driven by the female contestants. So again, you're seeing reduced bidding in counter-stereotypical settings. Um, but what's really unique about this data set, and frankly a little bit frightening, is that these are people who have trained for months, probably years, to be on the show. 
So, so they've been answering questions about everything. They've been sitting down and watching the show. I feel like I'm talking about myself right now in a sort of obsessive way, um, but that's that's what it is. And so, you know, even even if people think that people should have a really great sense of their abilities, but they're leaving money on the table by being risk averse uh, with their bets. And these are these are professionals, kind of at the top of their game. I feel bad saying this, but but that's what it is. Um, and so, so what we're kind of taking away from studies one to four is that the context really matters, um, that it has pretty significant both um, utility sort of implications in case you get like a terrible piece of candy, but also monetary explanations. Again, you get real money on the show. And if you're wondering about this photo, it's because there was a Jeopardy category last year called Women Want, What Women Want. Um, it was about fashion and everything, and it stirred up a lot of controversy. For what it's worth, um, men and women answered those questions equally in that round. So, I'll jump in. So, you know, as we're thinking about how context shapes one another, we want to think about ways to reduce that context because risk taking um, isn't risk taking if you're being bounded by, by constraints. Um, and so, let's, we're going to look at two hypotheses here. Um, we think that role models are a really great way to do this. It, you know, you can have role models in any aspect of your life, um, whether that be work or play or family. And so we think that exposure to counter-stereotypical female role models will reduce this risk aversion. Um, in some ways, being in a masculine environment, it's great to have someone alongside you who's like you. Um, and I think all of us, at least for me, I have a, what I would term the kitchen cabinet of women uh, who have really supported me in fields where I have felt pretty isolated. Um, the second kind of corollary hypothesis is that we predict that this exposure becomes stronger, again, the potential for the potential of identification. Again, uh, kind of the mentor or the role model that you want needs to be um, someone who's relatable. Um, and relatable, that can be demographically similar, that can be just feeling like you can achieve it. So we'll look at study five. And what we're using here is um, Das Gupta's stereotype inoculation model. Um, she actually presented this a couple years ago, so I feel like this is a great kind of wax circle in some ways. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that role models are social vaccines that inoculate against stereotypes. So much in the way, you know, if you meet somebody from your admitted student's weekend, if you meet a female partner at your uh, law firm, for example, these are people who can kind of come alongside you in your field. They don't need to directly mentor you, but just knowing that they're there kind of protects you against thinking that you need to follow kind of the stereotypical path. Um, we see this in the lab in some ways. Uh, so this is, you know, with regard to people kind of doing science exams. It's a little bit like the stereotype threat. If, some, if your proctor on an exam is female and you're working in a kind of stereotypically male field like physics, you actually perform a little bit better. Um, and we see this in politics. And the literature that I refer to here is kind of with regard to the quota system. Um, so in certain elections, there are quotas um, for, for female candidates. And what you see is that there's this gradually uh, changing shift of attitudes. You can also see that with, um, for example, the expansion of uh, cable television in India. Emily Oster has a great paper on that. Uh, this picture, for what it's worth, is the Grace Hopper celebration, um, one of my favorite events that I've never been to. Um, and it's basically for women in computer science. Um, I know that a lot of my friends have benefited uh, very personally from seeing other um, peers and mentors 
um, who, who are in that field. And they say that it is a great buffer, and they actually use that word buffer, um, from going back to their workplace as the only woman or woman of color um, at their startup. But not ro all role models are optimal. Um, and so this relates to our point on relatability. Um, comparing yourself to kind of someone who is out of reach um, can lead to negative self-esteem. This is often what happens to me when I'm watching Oprah and I just, I feel like I can't do everything there. Um, but it also relates to demographic uh, dissimilarity. So you start trying to find excuses for why um, you might not be able to succeed as much. And you say, well, this person is different. They've had a different background. So we really think it's important to have a relatable role model in play. And so one way that, go ahead. It's very, very important to have a role model because in the past, a long time ago, we don't have many women or even few women who are president, who are prime minister, who are in the top level. So that really kept women very much low standard in, in salary, whatever it is. But now, thanks to God, we have a great role model in prime minister, like our president, most like Hillary Clinton, and Nancy, you know, so many, so many now. And it's, it, it's a new day for us. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really great. I think having role models um, is really important. I, I don't know if there are enough per se. You know, we, we want to think very carefully about not just whether role models are there, but um, who those role models might be, and if there's kind of a role model for everyone involved. Um, so really thinking carefully about that. Um, just off the cuff, you know, sometimes I think mentorship programs don't necessarily work because your mentor and you don't necessarily click, and so this might be one factor. And what I mean is that just to, to know somebody is there. Only in the long time ago, only men are in the top place, but now there are women, whoever they are, they are there, and you can see, you can hear, and they will think you can make it too easy, probably, if you work hard. But it's very important to have a role on the model. Yeah, visuals, visuals are huge. Um, so with regard to kind of our specific model in play, uh, what we think is that relatability uh, moderates kind of these expectations. And what that is to say is that, yeah, a role model really matters, um, and they're able to change um, the expectations that you have for yourself, particularly as a woman in a male-dominated field. Um, and then we actually think that changes how people view risk-taking. Um, we might say that that's not just in a consumer context, as we've seen before, and not just like in risk-taking for yourself, but also risk-taking in terms of your career. Um, the point that I want to stress is that risk-taking matters, and that risk-taking matters just across the board. And again, relatability, the more relatable you are with someone, uh, changes your expectation. You can actually visualize in some ways um, what you want to be or where you want to be. So what we have here is we have a kind of smaller intervention, but, but a really neat experimental one, I hope. Um, what we do is we have participants read about a profile of one of three women. And those women vary on how counter-stereotypical they are, so how, how kind of closely they relate to feminine norms uh, or more masculine or businessy norms. Um, they also differ in kind of relatability. Someone uh, may seem more like you, someone may seem more different. And we'll see those profiles soon. Then we ask them to engage in an investment activity. Um, like 20 minutes later, we have them kind of engage in a couple different activities, forget what happened, and, and come back and uh, engage in a risk activity. That's very similar to study two. 
Um, so what might that look like? The way that we designed our study is that we have three <coughs> conditions. Um, we're varying identification, so whether someone is relatable or not, and we're also relating um, how counter-stereotypical they are. So we actually, to be clear, don't use any photos in the profiles we use because that would be kind of a confound, but this hopefully will help set it up here. Um, we have uh, Marjorie, who is a bakery worker, um, and so she's working at a bakery. Um, she kind of goes through kind of the labor cycle, exits the market, re-enters, has a pretty rich family life. We see her as maybe more uh, stereotypically aligned with feminine norms in the career, um, but also pretty easily to identify with given kind of the sample we have. We have M-Turk workers. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, we have Marjorie, um, same name, same person, but, and, and actually a real person, uh, the CEO of, Economist, of the Economist Magazine group. Um, we have her as very counter-stereotypical because she's a business magnate and she's leveraged kind of the work that she started out doing as a bakery. But we also have her as low identification because she's running a billion dollar business. <coughs> Um, so I, again, think of her as kind of the Oprah of profiles here. Um, what we want to say is that neither of these kind of stories are going to be the best sort of scenario in terms of risk taking. Um, because this is kind of following a particular trajectory that people are exposed to every day, are used to, um, you're going to kind of see regular amounts of risk taking. Because this is so distant and it's so unlikely, but possible everyone, but unlikely individually, to become a uh, CEO of a billion dollar company, you might kind of give up on taking risks. So what we say instead is that there's a third middle option. Um, I picked this because it was really happy, but what we're trying to say here is that um, a business manager, or in this particular scenario, someone who started out at a bakery and ended up owning it as a small business owner um, might be kind of more relatable. Uh, the sort of aspirations and goals are big, but not um, so overwhelmingly or conditioned by luck. So the scenario starts like this. Marjorie Morris attends a community college in Nevada. She marries Albert Scadino. They uh, move and become uh, half children together. That scenario changes across, and everyone reads about the same amount of words to control for kind of how much time they're investing. Um, in the high identity um, and high relatability, but kind of stereotypical setting, we see that you know she applies for a part-time job. Um, after the girls are a little bit older, um, she cuts back on her work and she quits. And um, what I don't excerpt here is kind of the description of her family life. Here we have, um, again, kind of high relatability and a counter-stereotypical focus. Um, she actually purchases the bakery. Um, she experiences success with the bakery. Again, we're, we're making sure everyone has happy endings in the scenario. And we say, you know, she's really grateful to have succeeded as a business manager and have taken, uh, take, have taken calculated risks. And that risk part is really important. It's what we use to kind of drive through on that test. Lastly, the business magnet is here. She's, uh, we go through like the same scenarios before, but again, I really want to highlight the fact that she becomes CEO of Pearson, which owns The Economist. And again, she attributes her work to have uh, been taking all of these risks um, throughout her career. So what we do after those profiles are read, again, we wait 20 minutes, we have them engage in other tasks, and we have them read through this part where we have invested um, money and investment and they have to decide between these two funds. It's like study two, one fund is much more riskier than the other, but it's actually a sure loss. So it might be worthwhile to kind of 
um, earn a little bit of money. And this is real money. This gets added to the participant's bonus at the end. Um, again, this is on MTurk, so kind of the significant, this might seem like a small bonus to earn, but it's actually pretty big for folks on that survey site. So what should we find here? Um, well, as predicted, we find that the business manager who is relatable um, and also counter-stereotypical in terms of ambitions um, leads to uh, higher risk taking among female participants. Mm -hmm. We see that these two folks, the bakery worker and the business executive, lead to similar risks, suggesting that the intervention uh, with those particular figures aren't working. And we see no difference between male participants, which really does suggest that uh, the gender of Marjorie Miller really matters in the role model. We don't test for masculine uh, kind of characters, but because we're, as again, primarily focused on kind of risk taking here. So with that in mind, we wanted, again, to look at the broader world. Much as our lab studies relate to the Jeopardy study, we want to look at how this scenario study translates to the real world. So what we actually do is we, we kind of turn it a little bit and we look at our last hypothesis, which is that predicting kind of female role models on risk aversion is going to be explained by support for that. And so related kind of in your work setting, it's really important to have a supportive work environment in addition to the visuals of having a role model who looks like you. So here we're using survey data from an Indian IT firm with about 80 participants in play. So we actually have access to data from both um, employees and managers, and they actually fill out evaluations about one another. Um, and so what we find here is we're asking about their job satisfaction, we're asking about their job performance, um, and we're asking about how comfortable they feel about taking risks on the job or um, being more ambitious in their career, knowing that there's some sort of risk involved. Um, these are kind of the measures that we're looking at. So, so this is kind of what we're using to look at risk um, in terms of job. I consider moving to a new city for my job. I thrive in unpredictable situations. Uh, this isn't obviously the full list, but it runs the gamut of work scenarios. Um, and then what we do is we control for job performance and job satisfaction and age because those things are often correlated kind of with risk seeking on the job. If you're, um, if you're not doing well, you may either, you know, you might not want to move because you think you won't be promoted otherwise. Then we, we think also about general expectations because that's what we're measuring to see kind of the change. So here what we're finding here, and the key, the key is that we find that female subordinates with female supervisors in this firm are more likely to engage in risk. Again, the study is paired with dyads, so um, we should kind of see that with female subordinates and male supervisors, they don't necessarily have a role model in play, especially since these subordinates work primarily with one supervisor. Um, this is really their mentor. So what that seems to suggest to us is that role models matter, role models position matter, and then the way that the role model engages with the employee um, is, is huge, not just demographically. Um, that these women um, feel like they can take more risks with a female supervisor involved. So ultimately, what we're seeing here is that in order to mitigate timidity and risk-taking among women, the context matters. But so do role models. There are two things in play. Um, so obviously the situational context matters, um, and obviously kind of more of a supply sort of issue matters. By bringing in role models um, into work, that's one way we can reduce risk-taking, 
um, risk taking is not necessarily something inherent uh, to the masculine kind of field or to men in general. Um, it's something that can change. Um, so I can talk a little bit about my future work, but I'm happy to take questions at this point and then move on at another point. Um, okay. Uh, so this, oh yeah, go ahead. Um, did you analyze the risk-taking behavior of the role models themselves, or did you just assume that if they were successful, they took risks? So I believe that we looked at um, just of the subordinates, um, but that's something that we could definitely look into. It's a neat question. Yeah. Heidi, I wondered if when you looked at the Jeopardy example, mm -hmm. you, and there's three contestants always, right? If you looked at whether or not there were two females or one female and seeing difference in risk preference. So I didn't see any differences in risk preference. Um, there have been previous papers, I believe one in like um, 2003, mm -hmm. uh, where they actually find that there are differences between having kind of two men or uh, one man, one woman on either side of you at the podium. Mm -hmm. um, but one that, that data, I think, has maybe 85 observations. Mm -hmm. um, and two, it doesn't control for the content of the game. Um, mm -hmm. At least with our data set, we didn't see any differences in that. Um, and I think that might possibly have to do with our sample as well, which is to say it's pretty early on in the game. Everyone's trying to do as best as they can. And so, so gender kind of differences might not necessarily be exacerbated. Right. Um, we see, and given that particular example, yeah. you have a consistency in terms of gender of the host. Right, yeah, host always never changes. Um, I think what is kind of weird is that even in the early stages of the game, um, we're kind of seeing these differences emerge. Even, you know, this is really the time for people to kind of take risks. Um, in the early stages of the game, basically the questions are a lot easier than the questions in the later segment of the game. So it's kind of weird that stereotypes already being in play within the first five minutes. Okay. Is there a difference between rounds one and round two and whether or not people are more risk averse during the daily doubles and things like that? Yeah, so we primarily have round one data right. in play. Um, we chose not to look at round two data, um, mainly because it's so late in the game that kind of differences in scores are being exacerbated. So um, there's going to be more strategy in some ways. I think people tend to be risk-seeking just anecdotally um, in round two, because um, this is a regular season game, so like you win, you keep on and the rest you go home and so you see kind of gradual increases in risk usually. One of the mechanisms that I often see what would be within the context of your study viewed as non-relatable female role models, mm -hmm. what they often will do is to create a relatable vignette somewhere in their early remarks. Mm -hmm. um, we run political training programs here and I find very high level women from the U.S. Senate and so forth are conscious of the effect and the mechanism and the mm -hmm. distance and work to close that gap. And I thought it might be interesting if in one of your examples you tested for an unrelatable role model, something in it that one effectively seeks to close the gap, see if one could fine tune what that mechanism is. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll give you an example. Um, Carol Mosley Braun in a speech in Boston, you know, she's been out of office for many years, so I'll use someone who currently is not um, formally in a political role. But she talked about getting ready in the morning, which was a totally relatable vignette, and mentioned specific steps of getting ready that probably the majority of women 
would have participated in that day. Um, and I think that trying to close the gap, in essence, to be a role model, I wondered if there's behaviors which could be examined or studied so that women could functionally do that, since we often have too few role models and not enough relatable role models in any sort of um, traditionally male-dominated field. Yeah, I think that's, that's actually a really great intervention to have. I think it's something that I've noticed across the board in some ways in really high cultural capital situations, mm. um, both among men and women. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be kind of nice to see what, what's going on there. Um, I worry a little bit that kind of putting the burden on women to change that intervention uh, might kind of reiterate stereotypes. Sure. But I think it would be kind of at least something to push forward on. So, yeah, I, I would like to look into that. Interesting. So, along those lines, uh, when you actually looked at uh, women that uh, take up this, let's say, male supervisors, speak up a little bit. Yeah, thank you. Were you able to find any traits that actually has some of these female supporters more risk taking and find traits about male supervisors that might have encouraged that? Or is bouncing off your idea of not putting the onus on, say, female supervisors in all of this? Sure. So I don't think the data we were using had personality traits, so it would be kind of be hard to pull from that. I think we were really interested in kind of the macro context of the office. <coughs> but thank you. Um, one graph that I really wanted to kind of think about is this graph from NPR, which is um, called uh, What Happened to Women in Computer Science? And so the NPR article basically posits that, you know, um, kind of early on, and, and you can kind of see it see it here, but if you, if you push back earlier, a lot of the pioneers in computer science were women um, because it was viewed as kind of a technical routine job. Um, and what they argue is that with the introduction of the computer, um, it kind of, the, the women in computer science um, ended up declining. So some of the future work that I, I want to think about is, you know, how, how does counter-stereotypical behavior um, get channeled through on the other end? So it's not just about entering the field, but it's about what keeps people from entering the field, right? Um, what are the, kind of these socially motivated cues um, and, and underpinnings for, for why counter-stereotypical uh, behavior or behavior aversion uh, in risk might occur. Um, and so, so I think, you know, one thing that I talk about with my friends in CS is, you know, what happens in seminars, you're, you're in a place where there are 90% men in the seminar. Um, and I know that I've had this case too in seminars where there have been a majority of men. And so they say, well, it doesn't really matter what I say, because if I say something wrong, like everyone's going to hate me. If I say something right, that's just part of the course. And, I think maybe hopefully all of you, or maybe not so hopefully, can think of examples in those kind of situations. Um, but what, what I'm really interested in looking at down the line is you know, whether people are penalized for engaging in counter-stereotypical behavior. Um, last week's seminar um, really talked about kind of counter-stereotypical behaviors and how to align your own identity uh, with those behaviors to negotiate and, and really leverage, kind of and bring your whole self to the office in some ways. Um, what I'm curious about here is that, you know, one of the things uh, that might be in play is uh, I ran kind of a quick Jeopardy study on looking at evaluations of these fictional uh, sort of contestants on the show and whether they answered a question about fashion or a question about military history correctly or incorrectly, whether they were male and female. Um, and the early evidence suggests that, um, you know, with counter-stereotypical behavior, 
your behavior is more likely to look risky, um, whether or not you get the question right, obviously. And it's also um, seems to be a poor judgment. And the weird thing about this is that it doesn't seem to matter whether you answer correctly or wrongly, you're going to be penalized. Um, we've talked a lot about kind of um, the, the sort of work between competence and warmth. The more competent you are, particularly for a woman, the less warm you might be perceived. Um, and so, so we don't we don't necessarily see that here, but what we do see is that even in like really strict knowledge domains where we're actually measuring concrete outcomes, you're still getting poor judgment regardless of the outcome. That's not a it's not a question about whether you're likable or not. It's really a question about competence. You should you should know if you're competent or not if you're getting the question right or wrong. Um, so so that's that's kind of some of the work that I'm pushing into right now. Um, I wanted to kind of. Um, leave with a couple kind of disheartening examples and maybe a discussion of um, one kind of you know I would love to get your feedback on what ideas you would think are interesting I really appreciate um, your suggestion um, about kind of incorporating this relatability um, and also just thinking more broadly about kind of the phenomena we see um, Ashley Judd is a personal hero of mine and is also an HKS alum um, and recently uh, in March she's a pretty um, avowed UK fan, but every time she posts on her Twitter, there's always like a lengthy list of men who criticize her for not knowing any sports. And so this is kind of the penalty for counter stereotypical that behavior that I, I kind of see in some regard. Um, there's also this kind of longer paper where this woman was writing about kind of career trajectories um, among women and men in the sciences and was asked to add a male author because she um, was not necessarily empirically as gifted. Um, and so, so it's really about kind of pushing against these stereotypes and, and what we can do to solve them. Yeah? Uh, question, are we penalized if the woman is going towards a male role, or males are also uh, penalized by males who are going female role? Because on one case, like, I'm, like as a male, I could not like women going into male role because mm -hmm. it's more competition for me, right. but I would be totally fine with male going to female because it reduces competition yeah, so the study, um, the Jeopardy study that I was kind of briefly mentioning earlier, we see the penalty for both men and women. So, so it's poor judgment, you're ranked as poor judgment in making a more risky choice um, if you're a man betting a lot of money on a feminine Jeopardy question, which I think is a little bit, um, maybe a little bit unexpected, um, but I think it's important to really note that you know men bump up against these stereotypes. Um, without linking everything together, since this is still in the early stages, um, obviously, kind of the past hour, I've been talking about how women's behavior change uh, changes with regard to those risk factors. And so, I think one question to explore is, you know, even given that penalty, what is it um, about that context that makes men kind of um, not change their their behaviors? And men usually have very high social sanction from other men participating right. in behaviors yeah. that are viewed as feminized in some way. So. Yeah, and, and again, I think it also comes down to context. <coughs> and I think the Jeopardy context overall as a game for money is considered a male context, right. and then we're looking at segments within what is more broadly male context. Exactly, well. yeah, yeah. I think the game is pretty primarily male, um, but it's just that people are prepared for it, and so we feel that it's a gender-neutral platform. Hi, can you, can you go back to the slide on the, the computer science one? Sure. So, you know, so, so to me, a big issue here, and, you know, just full disclosure, I was actually teaching computer science to high schoolers mm -hmm. in England, 
in the late 70s, early 80s, right? So you can see where that was. Well, they were all boys, right? And I was on a, you know, I chaired a group, which was all men, except for me. And at the time, I didn't recognize that there was something wrong with that picture. Um, but um, the, the fundamental question under, underneath all this is how do we create these stereotypes? How do we genderize stuff? How do we get from, you know, when we're born to understanding what are girls' things, what are boys' things, what are men's things, what are women's things? Mm -hmm. Because by the time we're, you know, you reach this kind of stage in life where you're, there are these stereotypes and you're getting penalized for stepping outside these norms, um, you know, but the origins are, the starts really, really early. Um, that graph, I understand that that graph represents um, the, the downturn in computer science, represents the time when home computers, hobby computers came in and they were a boy's toy, right? Or they were a boy's thing. And the boys got them and the girls didn't. And by the time that worked its way through the system, right, by the time people were going to college and going into jobs, right, the boys had lots of experience that actually got very wrapped up with their computers. The girls had not had the same experience, so they were really behind the eight ball and, and couldn't enter the field. Um, but my fundamental question is this genderization, how do we get into the genderization of just about everything? So I think, I think that's a really difficult question, and I would love to talk about it for hours, but um, here's kind of just the short feelings I have on, on that matter. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of initiatives that promote kind of female equivalence of, of um, kind of male toys in some ways. So I'm thinking about kind of these um, Lego bricks. I, I think it's called Ruminate, yeah. which is kind of a building process. And, and I think that's one way to kind of get folks really interested in the underlying sort of um, same, same mechanism or same cognitive skills that you learn from Legos or from these building things. Um, I think, you know, obviously socialization happens really early on. Um, I get a little bit concerned that if you have kind of the female and male equivalents, that women who actually prefer to play with Legos or men who prefer to play with ruminates um, will actually be penalized. And, and I think that's what I'm trying to get at with the counter-stereotypical sanctioning. Um, I think the way that I prefer to think about the intervention is through kind of the skills building exercise. And so what that is to say, how do we kind of think about these gender categories and say, hey, here's the data, you know, we're, we're just as competent as any other group in play. So I, I don't know, feel free to well, push back. Know, I mean, I mean it's, it's also true that out in the world, risk, right, for women in the world at large is, is a much bigger, personal safety, right? Mm -hmm. Risk in terms of personal safety sure. is a bigger issue for women. I mean, women, women do have more challenges. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, that, I, you know, I, I don't know how it feeds into your, into your work and all the stuff on, on, uh, on Jeopardy and all the other stuff. But uh, somehow when I think of risk, I think of, you know, walking around at night and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I think here we're looking at primarily risk in careers, um, kind of what, what really influences economic outcomes. That's where a lot of my training has been. Um, I'm doing a little bit of work actually on 
uh, safety and risk, and so thinking about domestic violence survivors, thinking about sexual assault survivors. Um, but, and a, a lot of that is not about reducing risk in some ways, it's about kind of intervening in folks' lives after assault or um, after. But, you know, I think, I think when you get into discussions like that, then the question is like, who the onus is on, like, where, where supply and demand go. So um, is the onus on kind of social structures to provide the, the equality of risk? I think it's kind of a, more of a social policy issue. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I, just, I have a question. Unfortunately, I'm really not familiar with this game, the mm -hmm. um, TV show. Yeah. But I was wondering about the expectations. Uh, when you're saying that they're penalizing like um, women for going into male role, how does expectation play into that? Because I can imagine, for example, if it's going to be you know a female, do they? How do they introduce, for example, contestants? Because if it's a female and they're saying that they she's like she's a housewife or whatever, then she's going to be you know punished for choosing uh, sports. But if they're going to there's a the same looking you know female who is introduced as an officer in Marine Corps, mm -hmm. then like I think I expect her like people not penalize her so much for going a little bit lower, you know, like yeah. a little bit towards male in the uh, choosing categories because of the expectations. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think those priors really help. Um, just for note, on the show they do say like you, your name, your occupation, and your hometown. Um, and my sense is that there are certain hometowns that are biased against kind of rural areas in particular. Um, but that's just anecdotal. Um, what that, that is actually different from our experiment because we don't actually use real contestants or real photos of contestants when we're thinking about backlash um, against counter-stereotypical behavior. Um, what we're really looking at is we use kind of a, a lab experiment or an MTurk experiment and we create an artificial profile of a contestant. So what we're doing again here is, I think in my example I say, you know, this is an Ohio State student and it's either male or female. And so they're answering. And yeah. you're not saying major, like she's. Oh, I do have majors. Actually, you have majors. I have majors, but I don't change them. So participants are only <coughs> seeing one of four profiles. Um, they're seeing either a man answering a feminine question, a woman answering a masculine question, a man answering a masculine question, and a woman answering a feminine question. But you're not changing their profiles. At the their end. profiles aren't changed at all. Yeah. Um, so they they see about uh, it's like a 400 word profile on their background, but none of it's changed. It's a big profile. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Felt like I was writing like a dating profile on the site when I was setting up this. But yeah, so we really try to make those kind of environments as rich as possible in the setting. Have you th oh, oh. have Go you ahead. thought at all, like I worked in like early childhood education before, so I'm wondering if you've thought at all about looking at like um, places where there's gendered math curricula starting at age three and four and maybe like the impact that you might mm -hmm. see on that over a longitudinal study. I that just, would be really neat. Because the, the rigor of the curricula is also very different for the boys and the girls, and okay. it's horrifying in some ways. So. Um, I'd love to talk to you about that. <laughs> You're saying there, that. there are locations where there's the math program differs by gender? I, in rural Oklahoma, yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Yeah, thank you. So I've recently been facilitating workshops with women graduate students in the STEM fields, <laughs> and the risk that they have consistently expressed is the risk in confronting sexist or sexually harassing language and behavior, mm -hmm. because the, the faculty members who may be doing it um, 
have an incredible amount of power over their future careers, but even their, their peers, they need to be able to collaborate with their peers and the people who will be future colleagues, and that they're risking alienating them, or in their words, being labeled as the person who's the problem, or who can't take a joke, or is taking it too seriously. So there is a, there is a true risk there mm -hmm. of confronting that, and I think that helps to perpetuate so I think that would be a really interesting I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that. That's definitely, um, I haven't seen it with faculty here, but I've seen it with peers um, in the work that I do. Um, and I think, I think that's really important to think about, um, especially as, um, you know, either as a direct experiment or I, I know that I am also thinking about kind of reaching out to women in, in fields and seeing how, you know, what sort of either interventions are in play or what kind of minute changes structurally. So I guess another motivation for, for kind of how I thought about this work, um, we've kind of talked about, um, at least I'm in law, and so like you think about specifically like family law as a more feminine field, antitrust as a more masculine field in some ways. I, I think, and I'll speak to my experience just thinking about law firms in some ways, um, you know, I, those things are being sorted out and worked at, at the private sector sort of phase. I think uh, mentors are really important. Um, I know that there's a great paper um, by Katie Mil Milkman, um, kind of about thinking about law firms and what it means to have a partner who is demographically similar to you, but also peers who are demographically similar. And I think the hurdle here in these really highly paid fields um, and in sorting out is that we often think of maybe correctly or wrongly about a quota system, that if you're in the same practice group um, as, say, a woman of color, that only one of you is going to advance. Um, I think Iris's work plays really well into this. Um, Iris's work basically suggests that you know, um, if you evaluate a group as a whole and you pick all your partners or you pick all your hirees from this bucket, that it's more likely to get diversity naturally in the field than by kind of having an up or out vote for each candidate. So that's kind of the sort of intervention that I would see there. Um, I think it's huge uh, just in terms of sorting out who, who can be where. Um, and I'll just, um, I'll add a couple sort of additional studies that one can look to on that. So one, we do see that trends in the physical sciences, that it, if we had this graph here, you would see very high numbers that go all the way up, almost equivalent with the men in the graduation now of PhDs in the physical sciences. So we've had tremendous catch in the graduation of PhDs, but then if you look at tenure rates, still really poor, like 30%. And so we end up where we actually have a, a very significant amount of talent, but that talent isn't then getting promoted through the ranks. Sort of piece one. We then have an overlay in terms of the business industry. There's just a really nice women in biotech conference at, at Radcliffe where when we look at biotech, 90% of the boards of directors in biotech companies in the United States are all male. Not predominantly male, all male. So then again, you have talent in the market, but it's not funded. So you have unfunded talent, so you don't see investment in women-owned and women-run companies. So again, talent, but gap. Um, and then lots of nice design work, as Heidi mentioned, 
um, looking more broadly at studies on how you select talent, but even beyond the selection of talent, we still have a huge problem on the colleague problem, McGinn's work, as Heidi was talking about. If you look up at an organization, there's no one like you, you leave. There's really good data on mentoring. The mentoring has to be incredibly long-standing. It's not like a spurt, it's not like a year. The good data on mentoring shows that it goes for years and years and years, and people co-author, so it gets to the heart of some of the issues raised in the question about finding colleagues to work with you and so forth. Um, so none of the interventions are sort of quick or replicable without significant investments. I also want to raise um, Kenji Yoshino's work, which suggests that um, you know, maybe we also need to look at the supply of mentors, right? And all of these things are kind of connected with one another. They all involve kind of increasing the pipeline, but also making sure that the pipeline doesn't narrow crazily. Um, and so, you know, what, what he suggests is that, you know, it's, yes, we can always demand mentors, but we need to have enough bandwidth for these mentors. Because if there's really only one, for instance, Asian American partner, they're, they're going to be called on by every single Asian American associate, and that really hampers them from going to senior partner partner or doing their work. Yeah, I think, I think Heidi, you're absolutely accurate in that. I think the mentorship can be a supporting role. Yeah. It's actually about architecture and design, which will make the shift. Yeah. There'll never be enough mentors to solve the problem if one sort of mathematically extrapolates yeah. it out. Um, but Dasgupta's work on the social inoculation, mm -hmm. for example, the most um, effective liberal arts college in the United States at graduating females in the sciences is Wellesley. Yeah. They consistently graduate more females who go on to PhDs, and if you look at the number, it's minuscule. I mean, they only graduate roughly 2,500 students. Um, it's their whole student body, so it's only a quarter of that annually. So we definitely find that the um, social inoculation works really well, but it doesn't get yeah. everyone to the top. Um, and you I have time for... Oh, yeah. Two questions. Perfect. I was going to also say, I think that it would be really interesting to kind of look at how, um, if there's some sort of co-authorship network at Wellesley that kind of results from them, those early experiences. So. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask you or anybody else in the room who knows about this, uh, in that talk, along that line of like having enough mentors available, um, how, what kind of mentorship is needed for any of this progress to actually happen or for someone to see them as a mentor? Um, like, is it just physically being there? Is that enough, or is it? Do they have to? How much of a role do they have to play in that subordinate's lifestyle or career? So, I think from the studies that we have, um, we we see that mere exposure, right, um, helps change kind of those risk aversion things, at least in a one-time setting, which I think is a pretty strong sort of manipulation. Um, I think you know we also see it in in this very high-touch situation where you know, this is a supervisor that you're working very closely with repeatedly. Um, so I think both both sort of situations work. I think the issue is about um, what sort of mentorship and what sort of thing you're trying to get out of it. Um, so I think I referred to the kitchen cabinet earlier at the beginning of my talk. And kind of the philosophy behind that is that you always have these mentors in different roles. You have a peer who is kind of alongside you and kind of answer low-level questions. Um, you have someone who, like, you're looking to, but you know, like looking to at the very top, and, and basically like this cabinet basically has kind of these ladder rungs. You have an insider who knows how the organization works. Um, I think, you know, I think mere exposure helps. The, the point being that the more mentors you have um, who fulfill different roles, they're not redundant. That's the real key. So. Yeah. I, I have a general question, so just tell me if it's... No, 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 no,
much. I'm talking about like one specific category, like the woman, for example. I mean, for instance, Louis's, but like uh, identity of a person is really, I mean, a person has multiple identities, mm -hmm. you know, religion, whatever, color, skin, you know, accent. So when we're talking about like mentorship programs and studies about mentorship programs, um, do, how do they mesh? Do they, um, is it like a, you know, some kind of survey going on first about asking people what you think is the thing that blocks you, you know, from going up in ranks? Like, for example, for me, I don't care if I'm like, uh, gender is not the bigger problem for me going into politics, you know, I have Russian accent. So, like, gender is not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, for me, like, a gender mentor, uh, it's not important. Yeah, I mean, I. So how how does this matching go? Because of the multiple identities, or like a Muslim, you know, someone who's like identified with a Muslim, he's like practicing religion. I think he is also. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really depends. Um, one, someone once told me about identities. They're kind of like an outfit you put yeah. on, right? And you put it on at the very end, and, and those roles become either more core or more important. Um, when I think about intersectionality and I think about race and gender, I know that there are very specific needs for, um, again, my own demographic, Asian American women, um, in particular workplaces that might be very different. But that's not always true for everyone, and I think that, to some extent, is really guided by how you perceive your own identity in some ways. So, you know, it's, I'm also, again, as you've all heard, I'm, I'm from Minnesota as well, and so my, my identity as a Midwesterner also drives a lot of how I interact with my bosses and uh, my co-authors and all of these things. And I think, you know, um, one, one literature that's really good to kind of look into is the literature on code switching um, and, and thinking very carefully about that. But I think those mentors, it's, it's also about clicking together. So and the mentorship programs, they do match with a particular identity of the person? Um, I don't think they always have to, right? But they, they should mesh on like style. And a lot of kind of the mentorship mentee style, I think, does, um, identity does really matter in that construct. There may be a way in which who you are um, like really affects how you like want a mentor style. So like for me, um, a chunk of my mentors have been from the Midwest because mm -hmm. they understand what it means to navigate in a East Coast world. Mm -hmm. so. Thank you for an incredibly interesting talk. We look forward to learning about your next set of work and results. Keep us posted. Uh, join us next week here at WAP when Faden Anna Kirtilis is going to be talking about the impact of eliminating affirmative action on minority and female employment and looking at state by state as a natural experiment in places where the states have banned affirmative action. So though the outcome may or may not be what you would have wished, it creates a really lovely experiment <laughs> to understand what the impacts are. So please join us next week for that. And again, Heidi, thank you so much both for today and for your participation with our center.